All right. Well, we're trying something new tonight. This is Jose Nino. I've uh, been on the Bro History show numerous times talking with Henry and Danny on geopolitical issues. And I also host uh, El Nino Speaks, my podcast on Substack. But I felt that tonight was a good, great opportunity to open up like a new chapter in some of our discussions because over the years of following not just foreign affairs, but also U.S. politics, I have caught on to some trends that I believe like are very persistent, specifically in the on the Republican side of the aisle, because for those who are unaware of my political background was that I got into politics because of Ron Paul back in 07. And I've been involved in some capacity working with Republicans or even within the party at times too. But nowadays I'm more of an independent and I will occasionally vote for Republicans, depending on certain issues, such as like if they're in favor of foreign policy restraint and immigration restriction. So there's like what um, in light of the Israel Hamas conflict is overarching trend that I've noticed as that has stayed the same since I got into politics is like the Republican Party's like fanatic devotion to Israel. And this comes at a time when the Republican Party is supposedly going through like a realignment, which it refers to the process of the party starting to become more working class and become more competitive in like Rust Belt states that were traditionally Democrat strongholds. And a lot of the Republicans' new support is from a, a perceived working class constituency that is downwardly mobile white working class with some with a growing number of Latinos coming into the fold. And despite these changes in the these growing changes in the party's constituency, its fanatic Zionism is still very much in place. And this cuts across every faction of the GOP from the foreign policy hawks, which is always expected, to even like the so-called populist Republicans. You can go from the likes of Josh Hawley to Matt Gates to see this still in effect. The only exception to the rule, in my opinion, is Thomas Massey, who's been a pillar of rational foreign policy since he was first elected in like 2012, I believe. But outside of that, he's on an island and this just goes to show that we have tons of work to do in terms of not only making foreign policy restraint like a a topic that is no longer taboo, say, like in the Democratic Party, but also in the Republican Party as well, which is supposedly seen as less hawkish. But when you look at the voting records these days, they're almost like the same, especially on the Israel question, though there are some caveats with the Democratic Party starting to have a growing uh, progressive wing that is becoming more critical of Israel. Those are just my initial thoughts. Yeah, well, I think you, I think you nailed it. So, as the Republican Party becomes the party of downward mobility, a lot of conservatives, a lot of Republicans, or right wingers, they're no longer or not going to be in a lot of the major institutions in the US that really control power. So I think the more that happens, the more they're, you know, they're they're pushed out of like corporate America, the less college educated they are. I think the more you're going to see them be over dependent on like the one pillar of power that they have and that's the Zionist lobby. And I I also think that since the Israelis and since the government has been so fanatical over the past 30 years or so, that is kind of like outliving its uh, appeal to modern liberal sensitivities that it has no choice but to just go in, go all in on the GOP. But I mean, this is still a work in progress because the, uh, I guess the Palestinian, uh, the AJP, which is like an, a, Pal a Palestinian activist group, they actually put out a study last year. Oh uh, no, it was actually earlier this year in February where they were tracking the the influence of like 
of, uh, of Zionist money and politicians. And the top 10 recipients were all Democrats. So like the top 10 recipients were, were Brown shot or Chantel Brown, Elaine Luria, uh, Haley Stevens, Chuck Schumer, of course, Glenn Ivey, Stephen Irwin, uh, Josh Gottenheimer, Hakeem Jeffries, of course, Maggie Hassan, Valerie Vauchy. And honestly, it's a strategy that is obviously meant to shut them up because their constituents are, are more likely going to be um, against the Israeli occupation. So it's like kind of like bribery money for them not to follow the, their, their own kind of voter constituents or their own public opinion they have to appeal to. But I think you're going to see a transfer of that type of money going more into the Republican Party. I mean, the, the Republican Party is like completely Zionist. It has been Zionist for so for for many, many years. There was a time, believe it or not, where Republicans actually used to stand up to the Israel lobby. Specifically, I'm talking about George Bush. And I mean, George, not George W. Bush, though, even George W. Bush made them get out of Gaza, essentially. I mean, the, how many the, how many settlers had to leave Gaza? Was it something like 80,000 settlers? You know, it was a significant move. But even before that, George H.W. Bush, uh, you know, he stood up to the Israelis to the point where he blamed the Israel lobby for costing him the election to Bill Clinton. And then before that, you know, Ronald Reagan had times where he had, he had, um, you know, stood up to the Israelis when he, when he called them. And basically, you know, during the bombing of, um, of Lebanon, he said that they were performing another Holocaust and he used the word Holocaust intentionally. So there was a time where Republican politicians or at least, you know, chiefs, executive power would try to put limits on them. But at this point, I mean, that's completely gone. If you see any Republican candidate, and obviously it's, it's going to be Trump, but every single person in a Republican primary is a very hardcore and very devout Zionist. It's almost like, you know, it's, it's so crazy looking at the Republican Party, looking at these primaries. And this happened in 2016 as well, where even Ann Coulter had said something where she got in trouble. But there, it's almost like they're trying to out appeal to Israel. Like there's a, it's a competition for, for, for Israel money. And even even RFK, since RFK took that vax, that um, anti-vax stance, and he was kind of shunned from the Democratic Party, you know, he he more or less started appealing more towards kind of like that same constituency that would be voting for Trump, kind of the, the white working class types. And I think since he was in that circle, that's the reason why he went so crazy in that direction for be you know being so pro-Israel. So I don't know, you're, you're just seeing that that overall trend where, where politicians are trying to, like, what's on their mind first is how can I compete for the uh, approval of APAC? And um, it's a trend that's probably going to continue. But on the flip side, a lot of younger people are less inclined to support Israel. It's very much a baby. It's, it's very much an older generation thing. Like every single poll, all the polling data suggests that, that, um, you know, essentially by, by age, the, the younger that you are, the less likely you are to support Israel. And that goes for both Republican and Democrat party. Obviously the Democrat party is way, 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 way less likely or younger Democrats are lay, way less likely to support Israel. But even I believe it was what you brought my attention to this poll where 50% of evangelicals or less than 50% of even of, of of Gen Z evangelicals don't support Israel or as over. I'm not sure how that was worded, but they were. Yeah, I think it this is just based on like anecdotal stuff because I, I do go to a, a good deal of Republican functions and you can just tell just looking at the like body language and like just the overall demeanor of a lot of these like younger Republicans when the topic of Israel comes up, these people are just not like into it. Like they, they're just, if they say anything pro-Israel, they're just saying it just to like be in good standing with whatever party apparatchik is present at this social function so that they don't get in trouble. A lot of a lot of this stuff, just going through the motions. But if you were to actually talk to these people likely in private, they'd be very lukewarm about the issue. Some might actually be downright hostile. And I'd say among the Gen Z cohort with Republicans, if they have any 
actual like populist inclination, if you will, they will probably be like at least against sending aid to Israel. Like I, even like for example, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who is just like totally schizo of these like foreign policy issues, she even voting for that bill to send fourteen billion dollars of military aid to Israel. She's also like starting to like oppose this type of aid. And I think it's there is a slowly growing subsect of the GOP that is starting to kind of rebel against it. And it really depends on the constituencies too, because for better or for worse, like people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, she has a lot of like crazy people that support her and especially in the conspiracy circles. And among those conspiracy circles, there's a good deal of people that are just anti-Israel now. It used to be a bit more polarized because there um some of these orgs and like the alternative media have actually been, I would argue, been infiltrated by Zionist organizations and they've um have worked uh by Zionist agents, if you will, and they have like been effectively watered down, if you will. But because the alternative media ecosystem is so big now that there's it's much harder to co-opt and these like so-called like counter jihad groups, which I think you could talk more about, uh, Henry, because you've talked about uh, we were talking about this before in our discussion prior to recording. But these type of counter jihad groups um, that have been used to like um, serve the agenda of of Zionism in um, Western countries, they're just starting to lose a lot of traction in general. Because I think that the alternative media space has gotten like so big and people have been able to do a lot more fact checking on like stuff concerning Israel that it's just really difficult to keep Zionist propaganda like perpetuating like it was before in like the legacy media era. But there are still some concerns because one thing that we uh, I have noticed in my time in politics coming from a lobbying background is that oftentimes public opinion, especially majoritarian public opinion, does not always translate into like the public uh, policy outcomes that the majority wants. You sometimes see very well entrenched um, interest groups still wield incredible amounts of influence and you see it specifically even like in those uh, American populist right, which is supposedly made up of a lot of anti-war constituencies or at least constituencies that are hesitant to jump on board the next military campaign. But um, I do think that ultimately this is going to be a generational thing that's going to usher in new change because once a lot of younger millennials and uh, Gen Zers, Zoomers, come into age politically, there's good I think there is gonna be a shift and even among the most like stubbornly pro-Zionist Republican elements, you're probably gonna see at least like the Republican Party entertain the idea of stopping like halting like sending aid to Israel. But that's gonna be like probably decades. Yeah, well, yeah, it, it will it will be over a long period of time until like a young the younger generation actually has real power. But right now, if you see conservative influencers, man, they're so pathetic. You know, they act like, you know, since the Gaza attack, and obviously I don't have to say, I obviously condone what Hamas did. So I don't want to, uh, you know, take that shit. But after that happened and, and like, you know, the war fever uh, was really growing to demolish Gaza, which is being demolished right now, you can just see conservative influencers basically acting like they were like how North Koreans were acting after after Kim Jong-il died. Like, who could cry the hardest? Like, who can grieve the, the, the hardest? It was, like, pretty ridiculous. There's a prominent conservative guy named Kurt Schickler or Schlickler or oh, whatever yeah, his him, last yeah, name. Yeah. So this guy is a prominent person. I, I had heard of him before. I think he's a he's a Second Amendment activist, right? From what I know, or a Second Amendment lawyer. Yeah, he yeah he's been featured prominently um in Townhall.com. You know what's crazy? He actually had reasonable foreign policy views from um from like 2017 up until like the present. Like he was like saying um kind of using anti-neocon talking points, but guess what? A lot of these so-called anti-forever war types and whatnot, 
They still have the Israel blind spot. And in fact, some of these guys kind of flipped too with the Russia thing. It's just that there were some reasonable people with regards to Russia that just went nuts um, with respect to Israel. But yeah, I know he is one of those um, that's um, interesting subset of Republicans that will make these like statements. Yeah, I'm against like forever wars, blah, 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 and like neocons. But then when it comes to Israel, they just turn it to total Ozio bots. But yeah, continue. This guy isn't just like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm pro-Israel. This guy was reveling in civilian deaths, civilian Palestinian deaths. That's the like the level where they're taking it, where, you know, a lot of these guys not only are like, I support Israel, but they were essentially just exhibiting the antisocial, you know, sadist behavior of like reveling in like somebody pulling out. So the, what I what I saw was, you know, how Justin Amash is... um. I don't know if you heard his, his, he had family, he's Palestinian American. He had family in Gaza and his family tragically died. His cousins who lived there tragically died while seeking refuge in a Christian church. And he had posted something on Twitter saying, basically being in completely insensitive and saying something that was just totally like, well, that's what happens when you fuck with Israel. And it's like the body of a little boy being pulled out of the rubble. And, um, it was just yeah. kind of sick. It was just it was just kind of a sick thing to say. And it was just kind of like this this kind of this satisfaction where these these uh these populist right people or whatever, these right wingers, they are adopting the prejudices of of the Israeli state because they can't adopt the prejudices, I guess, that they would normally have, you know, if, if, yeah, they live back if, they live, if they're allowed opinion. So they're, they like live their nationalism through Israel and they live and they, and they have their, 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 like any kind of racist streak through Israel as well against Israel's enemies. And it's just, I was just like, what the fuck, what do these poor Arabs do to you, man? Like, so it was, um, it's just like, is that, is that, is that type of behavior, which is like, like, what are you even doing this for? Like, who are you impressing? Your, your fellow, any normal person who looks at that is going to think that you're a fucking psychopath. So there's a lot of like, just, um, well, you know, what you were saying about how, you know, the counter jihad. So a book that I recommend to read, and he's not a right winger. He's a, he's a left winger, but he's, he's, um, you know, he's good on pretty much everything when it comes to foreign policy is the management of savagery by by Max Blumenthal and and he basically is like one of the most prominent critics of Israel in the world. You know, most of the prominent Israel critics or the most prominent Israel critics are left-wing left-wing American Jews. And the reason why it's like that is because they can't you can't really play the anti-semitism card on them. You can say that and they they do have consequences for their actions for for taking an adversarial position against Israel like Norman Finkelstein who basically lost his tenure because he he um he um exposed Alan Dershowitz of plagiarism of like a bogus hoax book that claimed that by you know this book by Joan Peters that was written in the 80s that claimed that Palestinians were were uh immigrants from from Jordan which is like which is like such a mainstream talking point right now when it comes to any conservative Zionist, when they'll talk about like, well, the Palestinians are actually from Jordan. I'm like, dude, that is that that came that comes from a hoax book from the 1980s, which has been debunked countless times. But um, going back, Norman Finkelstein, he exposed that as plagiarism, and he basically lost his his um, uh, well, Alan Dershowitz plagiarized that book in his book, The Case for Israel. And he, the political consequences were that he lost his, his tenure at, I believe, DePaul University. So, but the consequences are even more severe if you're not, if you're not a left-wing Jew, because then you can get really, you can, you know, they can up the ante and call that, call you an anti-Semite. The good thing is that the use, the word anti-Semite is thrown around so often that it's, it's losing its steam, uh, where people are not really taking it serious, as serious as people once did. But I went off track back to counter jihad. So basically, I don't know if you if you remember this trend in like 2015, 2016. And this is actually a time when a lot of people who follow politics now got into politics because that's when Trump enter, entered the picture, like for real, when he really started running for president. So all these people who are never really um, 
kind of looking at, you know, politics, especially on a global level where we're finally like going on YouTube and looking at political content. And you see the emergence of people like Ben Shapiro at this time. You see the emergence of people like Dave Rubin, who is like the liberal guy who realized that they're so crazy that he finally came to the right. Yeah, well, I left the left and then like the Prager U stuff started coming out. All these, all these things came out. That's that's when like Gavin McGinnis and and like even like the more right wing guys who were, you know, who who took things more, you know, who, who created more edgy type content, that's when they are started coming out. You started seeing these uh these figures like Ayan Hersi Ali. You ever hear of her? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I've been following her for a long time, even prior to that. Um, yeah, Douglas Murray in that crowd, and even like Mark Stein. Those guys have been active, I would say, I would go as far as to say since like the Bush years when the, you had that whole conflict of civilizations thing um, meme going around. They were kind of, it was like a, kind of like a proto-counter-jihad movement if you will, where they tried to um, link up with people like Hirt Wilders in uh, the Netherlands and some uh, members of the populist right to basically promote like immigration restriction of like Muslims and all that stuff um, because like they threaten like liberal values, blah, blah, blah. I'm generally like pretty Buchananite. When it comes to like immigration, I take like pretty restrictionist positions. But um, what I notice about those orgs, especially like the proto counter jihad and the counter jihad iteration of it, is that really they weren't really that focused that much on immigration restriction per se. They were mostly, um, I think, used as vehicles for Zionism to co opt like um, dissident elements of the right, if you will, and steer them away from like genuine nationalist issues and focus on stuff that's like really stupid or that advances Israeli interests. But yeah, continue. Yeah. Well, with these folks like Ayan Hirsi Ali, which there's actually, there's a debate with her and Scott Horton, which is, which is like pretty, it was almost kind of sad to see. I love watching Scott Horton debates, but this was just not even really a debate. It was just someone talking to a total idiot who could only speak in talking points or, or cliches. But this lady is a Somalian, um, you know, she's a Somalian uh, refugee who left, who left Somalia and moved to the Netherlands. And the more you investigate on this lady, you kind of realize that her entire story is fake. Like, it's like she, she made up like most of her life story. And it's like a total product of these Zionist organizations trying to stir up kind of anti-Islam sentiment. And the same thing, it was the same thing for this guy, Majad Nawaz, who I think probably a lot of people know him from, I'm not sure, he was on Rogan, I think, recently talking about the World Economic Forum, which, you know, this World Economic Forum crap, I think is such a fucking distraction. Like, who gets a fuck about the World Economic Forum? There's so many other different levers of power. Like, these, like a lot of right-wingers get, like, so drawn into, like, these, these like... Oh, yeah, the all-nine right man. Yeah, that's like, so right. Jesus, yeah. I'm like, yo, that is not... Yeah, they say some weird stuff, but that is not the major problem in the world right now. Like, there's a bunch of rich people get together and talk about stuff, and there's some weird ideas that are thrown around. But they take all this, they, they like kind of latch on to these these organizations and make bigger deals of them, and, and kind of center, and, and they kind of paint them as like the axis that the world turns around. But um, this guy too has a fake story. Like, he basically made up a lot of his life story about being a former uh, former radical Islamist type who went to jail. Like a lot of his stories made up. So you see these guys who are kind of these, um, who are these, um, you know, uh, artificial creations with the, with like the sole intent to like, to, to um, create this sentiment, this anti-Islam sentiment. And a lot of this was in like the 2015, 2016 with like, uh, with um, like guys like Tommy Robinson, there's a lot of money pushed from Zionist organizations to fund these right wing groups in Europe. These like these anti Islam groups, because in Europe, the Europe's problems are a lot different than the U.S.'s immigration problems. Like how many how many Muslim immigrants does the U.S. even get? Like barely like barely it like barely any. Like yeah, you, besides New York, Michigan, maybe some other major cities in the world. Like 
how many Muslims are there in America? Is it less than one percent? Like I'm, I, I'm serious. It's like it's, it's, it's a, it's a very, it's a small, small percentage of the American population. Like the immigration that we get is from the southern border, and it's mostly Hispanic people. It's not Muslims from Africa or the Middle East. That's all. That's all Europe. Yeah. And they're trying to paint Europe's immigration problems as American immigration problems, where. You know, they're like, oh, there's these no-go zones in Sweden. This is going to be your, your, this is going to be New York next. And it's like this problem is not really an American problem that they're trying to say that it is. And really the whole purpose of, of funding these groups was to paint the Israelis as the vanguard of this. Because most people don't even know their basic geography. And they think that Israel's located where Turkey is. And that they're kind of like this fortress in the Middle East that prevents the the Arabs and the Muslims from coming in and conquering their nations. And it's just going to be further from from the truth, like from a geographic perspective. And oh, just from- if you want to go down that rabbit hole even further, there's actually like some Zionist organizations like the. I think like the Hebrew Immigration Aid Society, I forget, oh, it's called, they actually, it's a cynical geopolitical strategy. They promote a lot of refugee resettlement of like military age men of like Muslim Arabs and send them to Europe because the reasoning, this is like a faction, a Zionist faction, and it's like a more like liberal, it's a more liberal way of doing things because a hard right Zionist would just say, we blow these people to pieces and all that and like level like these uh, Arab militants jurisdictions. But these guys on the other hand, more uh, softer Zionists will just relocate them to Europe. And they've been promoting a lot of like, these types of promote, not just that, but also, um, like a lot of like rebel groups in um countries like say like Syria or whatever to like undermine them and you even hear like the Assad government and other um Arab states complain about how they actually want their um these Arabs like being displaced that are migrating to Europe to actually go back to Europe because they need not just like the talent, but also potential like manpower to deal with like the subversives that are being propped up by Israel and the collective West. And there's a lot like here, this is like a massive rabbit hole that a lot of people won't talk about that. If you actually look at a history of like Zionism and um, even like just broader Jewry, the Muslims and Jews have generally have not always been enemies either. And you kind of saw this too with the the development of the so-called like Arab NATO and like the Abraham's Accords where like the Likudniks and their allies in um, the American populist right were able, were slowly building not only like a balancing coalition of like Arab countries against like uh, Iran, but also potentially like uh, Turkey as well. But yeah, there's a lot of, um, there's this general, like a lot of ignorance of like deep politics going on because when you start embracing these like black and white civilizational narratives, um, you ignore a good deal of geopolitical nuances and stuff going behind the scenes, both in like the traditional political legislative sense, but also like with NGOs that are making a lot of moves that people don't catch on to. Yeah. And it's like, there's a big blind spot in terms of, so a lot of right-wingers in 2015, 2016, when the Syrian war was going, was like really raging on a lot of right-wing. And I think this may have been because of Obama, but a lot of people started figuring out that we were on the side of Al-Qaeda and they just thought, oh, well, Al-Qaeda is there. It must, it just must be the Arabs who are funding them. But a big funder and a big coordinator of the of that proxy war of you know one of the big state backers of course it was saudi arabia primarily with with you know qatar and the was primarily backing the muslim brotherhood groups um i mean there's so many different groups it's hard to like to trace each one back to their specific state sponsor but there's some generalities there but the israelis were really on the side of the isis ones like the most extreme hardcore ones and that's not the first, and, and, and like conservatives don't catch that, that this was like the Syrian civil war was an Israeli project. 
to destroy the country, to weaken, to, to, to weaken Iran. And they, they don't like, you know, they're not able to catch these things or understand these things. They, they, they think that things happen in a vacuum. Another thing is that Israel has a, a habit and what's going on right now. There, there's no greater example of really siding with Islamists over secular Arab nationalists because they historically saw the secular Arab nationalists as the larger threat. So back, everyone know. I mean, at this point, I think enough information is even coming out in places like Haaretz, like there's, there's main, mainstream articles about how Netanyahu had specifically, as a policy, wanted Hamas to exist to essentially kill any dreams of a two-state solution. But that policy goes back a lot further than just Netanyahu. He didn't. He wasn't the one who invented that. That stuff goes back into the seventies when when that was you know when when uh, Hamas was still you know a de facto Muslim Brotherhood group because that's where it comes from. It, com- is a, it was a Muslim Brotherhood charity that provided civil services to the to the you know the poverty stricken across Palestine, and they um, you know eventually you know they were they were hardcore Islamists. The Israeli government let them exist. They gave them charity status, and then there was even tacit funding of them as well. And at first, they used Islamists to beat up on guys who were who were um, you know secular, you know more kind of commie nationalist types. So that relationship with you know using Muslims. Uh, against their their Arab enemies uh, goes back a long time, and there was this switch where it didn't become it didn't become the Arabs. It did become the it became the Muslims who became the enemies. And I guess that that when the Netanyahu government, you know, when the Likud party takes over, that's really when that switch happens. Because everyone, everyone forgets so in the eighties as well. Israel was allied with Iran, so in our we were on opposite sides during the Iran Iraq war. I mean, the U.S. We funded both. We funded both Iraq and Iran, but you know, we more or less took the side of Iraq more so than the revolutionary government. We had just been selling the Iranians um, the equipment that was used for their F-15s that they had bought under that were purchased by Nixon from the Shah, where they had left over. We were selling them as, but we were using the Israelis as intermediaries to sell them to, but. Israel, you know, they had joint operations with Iran to destroy Iraqi, um, what are they, what was that big operation? Yeah, Operation Seashell, where they were, they were taking out, was it, was it a nuclear facility or whatever? I forget exactly what it was, but they were, they were working together and had joint operations. And, you know, then that switches in the nineties. And, um, there's a really good book on this of what happened by Trita Parsi, uh, called, um, Unholy Alliance, or I forget it's a dangerous alliance. Where he writes about how uh, basically Israeli policy, basically it was a Likud policy to switch enemies and say, okay, we're going, we're we're going to be be enemies with Iran now and start to align with the Saudis. Yeah, there was actually even a good book uh, by Ronan Bergman, who is like a total Zionist. He is like an Israeli and a big Iran hawk. Where he um he detailed Operation Seashell, like no, no, noting that like Israel at that time took a uh, more like a pro-Iranian position. But yeah, I actually want to double down on this point, just dunk on um, conservatives, because I would always conveniently point out to them that in numerous theaters across the Middle East where Sunni radicals were just wreaking havoc, a- aka Sunni radicals being the ones that cause all the mayhem in Europe, because majority of like, if you look at the majority of like um, Islamic related like violence that takes place in Europe, it's predominantly Sunni Arabs or and some Pakistanis that engage in this. And it's not Shia, generally Shia Iranians and whatnot. Yeah, I mean, we can get into the history of the Iraq War. That would just be another rabbit hole. But it's like conservatives have this really big blind spot when it comes to the wars in the Middle East. They don't understand that. I mean, the, the predominant narrative, though, it is that the Iraq war was a mistake, but they don't understand the reasons why we went to war. They think it was just like oil or something like, yeah, it was because the oil companies like that. The oil companies had nothing to do with the Iraq war. Yeah. They had zero. They had, they had absolutely nothing to do with 
with lobbying for the Iraq war whatsoever. There's not a single shred of evidence to suggest that uh, ExxonMobil had anything to do with lobbying for the Iraq war. It's way cheaper to just buy the oil than to steal it. The war was a plan that was cooked up by the project of a new American century, which was a neoconservative, which was the think tank of the neoconservatives. And these were policy papers that had been previously written for Benjamin Netanyahu for guys like from guys like David Wormser and Richard Pearl and, you know, the dozens of other neoconservatives who signed on to this. Um, It was a plan to predominantly destroy Iraq for Israel because Iraq was their biggest competitor and the largest military power there. And they don't understand that these wars are all are centered around Israelis influ- Israel's influence on American foreign policy. And it's just like, it's only, it's like impossible to beat this into their head. Like they just don't want to under, they don't want to understand this. They'll concede that the war was stupid, but they'll, they won't look at it at any deeper level. And it's very frustrating to speak with with right wingers. Uh, of course, you know there's there's obviously many exceptions. There's a lot of right wingers who are good on this, but I'm talking about just like your your average Ben Shapiro watcher or your average uh, you know PragerU video looker or your average um, you know whoever um, you know they just they don't they don't know anything, and it's frustrating because they're. They get distracted on things like the World Economic Forum instead of like what what's really going on, and um, I don't know I don't know when these these people are going to wake up. But you know, like we said earlier, younger generations are starting to become a lot more aware of you know Zionist influencers. You know, I was telling you before that somebody who I was just not surprised at all was a huge crazy Zionist was the girl who runs libs of TikTok. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Big time. That was, and I was, just, I remember watching these videos. And first and foremost, you know, yeah, it's crazy and creep. Like all the videos that she was exposing are really creepy and crazy. And I guess it's good that we know that there are teachers that are like, you know, teaching your seven year old about anal sex and fucking, you know, <laughs> like all these freaky, yeah. <laughs> you know, chicks with dick thing. But come on, man. Like, how many fucking trannies are there in the world, in this country? Like 40,000 or something like that? I've met maybe two in my life. Two, I met two trans in my, two tran, two trannies in my entire life. For the most part, other than the annoying kind of like corporate culture of saying you have to borrow your pronouns, I just am not, and I live in New York where there's probably more trannies per capita than anywhere else in America. That has become like the kind of the major battleground for many conservatives. And I think this this girl lives at TikTok who made her living off this, which is a very kind of like Zionist kind of thing to do, this kind of cancel cultural thing, cultural thing to go and expose people and make them lose their job. Um, some of these teachers obviously deserve to lose their job, but nevertheless, it was kind of a very Zionist creepy thing to do to like look for people's videos and then tell on them. <laughs> and um, it's a Zionist tactic. You know, a big time Zionist tactic, yeah. Oh, yeah. I've argued that a lot of these right-wing groups, they don't really have, like, a constructive, like, legislative end goal. Like, what do you, what's your whole thing? Like, what's your, like, mission, ultimately? Like, like, what type of outcomes you're wanting to generate? Like, if you're just engaging in, like, outrage, polarization, politics, you're in effect, like, um, acting as like a like as a different wing of the political establishment because I've argued for a long time that this type of outrage politics does have like a political role of generating this like polarization that results in nothing meaningful ever getting done. Like I just see these groups, um, not so much as like a distraction, but rather like as vehicles for like diverting like otherwise productive political resources and talent into these just like do nothing causes that just contribute to more of like the dumbing down of like politics and just does not yield anything productive whatsoever. Well, you ever noticed that one of the big enemies for of the American right is the university system. And I think one of the reasons why, and we've talked about this 
the right wing is very anti-intellectual where they're like, you don't need to go to college, become a plumber, <laughs> become a, become an electrician. Hey, having this, being a skilled laborer is a, is a great thing. But if you're smart, like I'm not saying if you have a high IQ and you have the ability to be part of a major institution, then, and if you have like conservative right wing beliefs and, and you want to, um, you know, kind of take on the progressive march forward, then you shouldn't, honestly, a plumber is not going to be the person who can be the vanguard. Like you have to enter any institutions and, 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 you know, essentially change them. And, um, I think one of their obsessions with college campuses is that a lot of the anti-Zionist, you can even call it propaganda to some degree, but a lot of the anti-Zionist thought comes from these Middle Eastern departments in places like Harvard, in places like Yale, in these Ivy League institutions where you're going to go and you're going to speak to some, some Marxist professor who's going to be teaching you about colonialism and how Israel is an apartheid state. And I really, I think part of their obsession, you know, with Turning Point USA being like an example of like taking on the college campuses is, is actually um, being a bulwark against that, <laughs> like stopping that as it's at stopping that where the, the anti uh, Zionism, where, where it begins. What's funny is these people should be doing their political homework because when it comes to like academia and like student organizations, like those people do not have like much political power uh, like whatsoever. I'd argue that business groups, foreign policy think tanks and like military industrial conglomerations um, have much more of an impact in terms of like legislative like decision making and like the writing and like passage of laws and like academics. If anything, academics tend to follow like the trends that happen in like DC and they just suck up to the political establishment. Like a Middle Eastern, like one guy that uh, spouts like anti-Zionist views um in a Middle Eastern studies like department does not have like influence. Like let's like be honest here. Like that's like nonsensical and uh, this is just like the right showing its true colors and yeah also i would add to a lot of these right uh these right wingers that complain about how they're getting screwed over by like local governments or state governments that take like activist measures against like their uh, political operations or free speech like it's dumb to be pushing this whole don't go to college just uh strategy because like what's gonna happen when you have like no like right wing or at least like right wing sympathetic lawyers like you're like gonna be up a creek without a paddle and like these type of political disputes but that's more veering off topic but one thing um i want to go back to because um this is like a big theme i want to be hammering home and these segments just like this one thing to add to that like look at elon musk who's not even a right winger but He's probably made more of a difference for right right wing discourse in terms of just having messaging across just because he's not a complete like liberal crazy person. He's like moderate. He's like, hey, I feel like it's way too crazy. Like the progressive march forward or uh, is going way too crazy. And I just want to create I want to monopolize a communication platform to make it less crazy and just let people speak. I mean, that guy is one of the most powerful people in the world. And um, like you need. You need successful business people, business leaders and lawyers and uh, people in government who are going to have these types of views to get your agenda across. So it's, yeah, just wanted to add to your already correct point. Yeah, it's pretty dumb. And I also think for like, um, there's some people in the reasonable right, if you will, the uh, the populist right that are take good positions on foreign policy that unfortunately have fallen into these memes. And it's not going to be good for you guys, because if you guys want to see actual foreign policy change, you're going to have to have like a uh, counter foreign policy elite, if you will, of people that are either being successful in academia, journalism, or other like respectable institutions to be able to wrest power away from people and also you're gonna need these people to like hold your party in check like through like citizen activism org or just lobbying in general which is very necessary nowadays because we, when we saw with this like recent like bill by um that was promoted by like the uh, new um house speaker mike johnson like 
dude, it seems like more of the same. Um, and you're not going to be able to change this political paradigm if you just become like proletarianized and don't have like a counter elite against the present neoconservative, neoliberal interventionist elites that dominate U.S. politics. Dude, it's like the, you know, it's Orwell. 1984 is like more relevant than people think. Orwell wrote this, you know, the, basically the right wingers are the proles. And this has been hate week. You know, that chap hate week where, where everyone just starts like, there's like different activities to show how much you hate the, hate the, uh, the opposition. And then Winston throughout the book, when he meets the fake, uh, Emmanuel Gold, Goldstein and he gets fed this stuff that, oh, it's in the, the secret to bring down the system. You, it's the proles. The proles will bring down the system. And then at the end, when he's talking to, um, was it McNally? Who's the fucking, guy who thinks he's sympathetic to him feels like an irish name whatever when he's like explaining like the evil plot of of the government for power for the sake of power he's like you really thought the proles were going to like to to change the system like the parole all we need to do is respond to them with crude patriotism and that's the word like crude patriotism and um they're completely uh you know subverted and they would be completely subverted and that's kind of the trajectory of where the American right wing is with this downward mobility. But I know we wanted to talk a bit about the um, the new speaker of the house. I'll give you my quick two cents about about him, and um, you can let you can let me know if you agree. But I don't really have too much of an opinion because he is it is he is what it is. He is what he is. Like I wasn't expecting any more, but I wasn't expecting any less really from a new speaker. Is he an upgrade from Kevin McCarthy? I don't know. Maybe time for it will tell. I think he might be better on some things, like probably like immigration restriction. He's probably going to be a little bit better. And he seems like he'd be more likely to bring this single issue, the single, uh, uh, not do the omnibus bills. But, and he also actually recently um, didn't vote to censure uh, or dismiss to censure uh, Rashid Tlaib, which was brought up by Marjorie Terry, uh, large Marge for uh, being a, an apparent pro-Hamas sympathizer. So maybe there's some 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 uh, semblance of like principle there with him. But the negative is also there too, where he is this crazy dispensationalist Christian where, you know, he had previously worked for Ken Ham and um, Ken Ham was the founder of the an organization called Answers in Genesis, which basically is like, you know, some sort of think tank that argues that the earth is 6,000 years old. And, you know, they, they advocate for a complete literal interpretation of the Bible. Um, Mike Johnson actually had, he had um, worked with him to secure government funding for a Noah's Ark theme park. <laughs> so he's, he's like a real crazy, you know, of course he's going to have like really extreme Christian Zionist, Zionist, um, um, you know, beliefs where he, you know, he believed, you know, he, he, he takes the literal interpretations of the Bible and, and believes that, you know, Israel's return to Palestine is based on the, uh, you know, biblical covenant between God and Abraham. That's in Genesis 12, three, but it's like, I, I looked into him a little bit more and I was just reading on the Israeli press. I was reading it. I was reading Heretz, and apparently he has like a lot of connections with like the Israeli far extreme right, where he was like on these trips with them uh, through like different settlements and stuff. So he's like deeply tied with like the you know the look the the right of the Likud crowd there, the Ben the Ben Gavir and the the Smoltrich crowd. So he is. Uh, of course, he's going to be super, super Zionist, but it's like, who isn't super Zionist? At least he's doing it out of principle, out of like a biblical belief rather than just being some fucking guy who's most likely compromised because he's gay and he's in the closet like Lindsey Graham. And there's nothing wrong with being gay, Lindsey Graham. You can come out. No, it's, it's 2023. Everyone knows that you're a 71 year old man with no children who's never been in a, rela a public relationship, and you, you know, you talk like this. I'm Lindsey Graham, and I want to kill some Russians. 2017 will be the year of offense. Like Jesus Christ, at least you're not that. 
But um, I don't know. What's your what's your take on him? Oh, I mean, Mike Johnson, this guy, I mean, like the name itself is just, is is generic, like a copy-paste, like Zionist politician, if you will, that you could like pull from like any like GOP like meeting. And curiously, from an inside baseball perspective, this move by like Matt Gates for like doing this whole motion to vacate, I really think he spent he misspent his political capital because he's now like not really liked in DC uh because of that like in Republican circles and he's um and he's if he's aiming for like a governor's position in Florida he might not get a lot of allies and um he basically replaced McCarthy who's just like an um a total waste of space of useless like chamber of commerce interventionist republican like you can find like a hundred of those like other carbon copies with another just like um zionist wacko in mike johnson which you can also find like a hundred of those in the current uh, gop congress as well and for like the amount of political capital he expended there i just don't think it was like even worth it from a policy perspective and also from like it his overall political trajectory because Gates on some issues at foreign policy, he's actually pretty reasonable. He's one of the few Republicans that was calling for restraint during the um, whole Soleimani assassination and also um, generally opposed um, further intervention like Syria, Venezuela, and other countries. But I just think that now more than ever, we the purpose of this segment and which we jokingly called like America second is to highlight the track records of these politicians, not just their rhetoric, but how they're actually voting on these issues to show that the GOP still has tons of work to do. Like forget their talks about ending so-called never ending wars, which is kind of like a dumb talking point because he, even if you talk to like the most hardcore of neocons, they're not in favor of perpetual wars. They just want like decisive victories that end up into the total destruction of their enemies and all of that. It's that we need like actual candidates that just like categorically reject like sanctions, covert operations, and other interventionist measures against foreign countries. That's like what the America First foreign policy is all about. But unfortunately, it's gotten muddled by. A lot of these figures that talk like they sound like interventionists or restrainers, but when you look at their voting records, it leaves a lot to be desired. And when you have people like Mike Johnson at the helm, he's already talking about like the axis of evil being Iran, China, and Russia. So whatever speculation that this guy would be like against like sending more aid to Ukraine, I think is largely wishful thinking there might be some nuances to his opposition to ukraine aid and my fear is given my cynicism of that has been built over the years of observing republican politics is that i think that a lot of republicans that are against aid to ukraine they're mostly against the economic aid if you're talking about sending heavy weaponry and stuff like that they're gonna be all gung-ho about it save like say like andy biggs thomas massey Marjorie Taylor Greene, Dan Bishop, some of those people. But that's like at best like 10 to 12 Republicans that will oppose that stuff like on principle. But the rest, they're absolutely down this agenda. And that's why like we need to kind of clear the air and show people like the track record of these Republicans is still pretty bad, even among the so-called America first types or the ones that purport to be like that. So um, I think that this podcast segment, like it's proper role is one of holding these people accountable and then showing their true political behavior. Yeah, I think that's a noble cause because there's too many people who are like, well, the Republican Party is now the anti-war party. They're not, you know, they're going back to their roots from the 30s. And, <laughs> um, you know, that's not the case whatsoever. No, the Republican Party in the 1930s and, you know, after Pearl Harbor, a lot of these Republicans who were who were very anti getting into World War II, a lot of them obviously were changed their tune for the you know after after Pearl Harbor. But after the war, they went back to the way they were. Like they were like, all right, the war is done. Um, here is all we just you know um, a lot of them were like we just like completely 
disgraced ourselves in Alloy and being allies with these monsters, these absolute, like the most horrible people on planet Earth in Mao and Stalin. And um, there was like a healthy interventionist sentiment in the American right. But after um, Taft died, that kind of just was, you know, became ancient history. And even Eisenhower himself was like a realist. You know, he wasn't a non-interventionist, but he was like a foreign policy realist um, executive who had a lot of competence and wasn't eager to go the route of the British Empire. You know, he a lot of his decisions, you know, he didn't want he what didn't want to he didn't want to be involved in nuking. He was against nuking Japan and he um, was against a lot of the really dumb policies that were created after during the Truman years. But, uh, you know, in the 50s, it just progressively and progressively got worse in the Cold War. I think really there's a great book that I would recommend reading. Well, there's two books that that you could read. You could be you could read Murray Rothbard's book on um, the death of the American right or the old right. And then Justin Romando has a really good book on this as well about, I like Justin Romando's book is better because it's just more detailed and it just goes into just how the American right was subverted by CIA spooks like James Berman. And I, and I like James Berman, Berman books, like his books are great. The managerial revolution and the Machiavellians are really good books. However, you know, he was a cold war hawk. Um, he was a spook. But a lot of those guys, even those those early CIA guys, they had like these, they had nuanced opinions on the world. They were like smart, intelligent guys who had like worldly opinions. And even Theodore Kermit Roosevelt had some really nuanced opinions about the Middle East. He was a hardcore Cold War warrior, but there's a he wrote a letter after when uh, after the US recognized Israel. And he was basically saying, do not do this. This is the worst idea ever. This is going to cause years of conflict. And he basically said, the only reason why this is happening right now is so Truman could pick up the Jewish vote in New York. And, um, you know, everything he wrote in this letter came completely true. I mean, this guy did, was a cold, you know, if you read his book about, you know, why he kind of took things into his own hands and, and, and kind of pursued with the anti-communist uh, agenda in Iran. Yeah, you know, I guess in the context of the Cold War, things were a lot different, but these guys just had like a lot more, they were just way more knowledgeable about no, world they were affairs. Much smarter. Oh, then. They were way smarter. Yeah. And then the Republican Party has solely got dumber and dumber and dumber and dumber. And Yeah, I, like the foreign policy elites that you see in conservative circles, like in every like conservative circle from like neocons to like so-called realists, groups in the Republican Party, these guys are just lightweights. And this trend of um of like not going to college is gonna accelerate the stupidity and it's gonna also um make it harder for dissident Republican voices to like actually change the political paradigm in terms of foreign policy. But that's a topic for another day, man. Um I think this is a great way to start off this uh new chapter of america second i'm i'm liking <laughs> I'm, I'm liking this title so we'll definitely circle back and actually expand upon some stuff that we see because i i personally think we're going to see some crazier stuff from republicans of all stripes whether it's your neocons to your so-called populists so people stay tuned and thank you so much as always for your generous attention yeah, and I really think that shit's going to go down come the 2024 election. There's going to be, I was talking, I just interviewed, so anyone listening, I don't think I introduced myself. I'm Henry and I have a podcast called Bro History. The other day I had, I interviewed, yesterday I interviewed Matt Ho, who was a, um, he was the guy who blew the whistle on the surge. So he it was a former state department guy, uh, Marine Corps captain, uh, Marine intelligence. And he was just, you know, he was saying, Hey, like, I don't think things are, he's like, don't be surprised that if these Muslim countries conspire together, 
come 2024 and try and, and do some sort of October surprise and try to get leverage on the United States by saying, Hey, if you guys don't, um, if you guys, um, you know, don't, uh, tell the Israelis to back off, then, um, we're going to, you, you, the price of oil is going to be $300 a barrel, you know, like, so like we'll, we'll drastically cut oil production and, um, don't be surprised of what, if that, if something like that happens of the types of conversations that are going to go on in the American right, because the conversations, because we're coming to the end of the Ukraine war and the Ukraine is losing. The narrative is not going to be, oh, that was a dumb mistake. The narrative will be that we didn't do enough. The narrative will be if something goes, shit hits a fan in the Middle East is that we didn't do enough to begin to start off with from the American right. It won't be that this was a dumb policy to begin with. It won't be self-reflective over the past 30 years of foreign policy decisions. It will be, oh, we should have bombed, we should have dropped a tactical nuke on Gaza. Like that would have solved the issue. Or we should have gave Ukraine F-22s and F-35s to be good with. Like it, it will be... That will be the level of discourse. It won't be one like this was a mistake. It will be that we didn't do enough. And that's already the narrative that's being put out by basically every every Republican talk show host, Mark Levine types. So um I'm just I'm just waiting for it. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm waiting for it too. Well, America Second signing out. <laughs>